always trying to do the best we can to, to say what is the level that people need to thrive, not just survive. Hello and welcome to CSU's Spur of the Moment, the podcast of Colorado State University's Spur Campus in Denver, Colorado. Now, if we can make sure that people do have the water they need for all their household needs, but also their community gardens, or if they have livestock, making sure their livestock can have enough water to drink, um, then you can really start talking about change and you can, people can have uh, economic opportunities instead of spending five hours a day walking to get water because there's one borehole really far away. On this podcast, we talk with experts in food, water, and health, and learn about their current work and their career journeys. Today, I'm joined by Cindy Kushner, Chief of Climate Resilient Water Sanitation and Hygiene at UNICEF. Cindy has had a varied career, with much of it focused internationally on water, sanitation, and hygiene issues. Welcome, Cindy. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. Absolutely happy to have you. I'd like to start a little with... Uh, the term water, sanitation, and hygiene, or wash. What is encompassed in that term wash? Water is something that is used for so many different things and, and, uh, and ways. Um, but what we're focused on in UNICEF um, and my work is on drinking water and water for domestic use. So uh, first and foremost, making sure that it is safe for drinking. Um, it is available, uh, which is not always a given, unfortunately, particularly in the places that we work. And sanitation is, it, it means something broader, but fundamentally in its core, it means toilets for us uh, and making sure people have, again, safe, dignified places to, to use a toilet instead of kind of picking a technology and saying it's a toilet the way that we know in the U.S. It's about a place that can really separate the human waste from human contact. Um, and, and that opens up more, more technological options, more affordable options for different environments and different places and different economies. Um, and then hygiene is primarily, again, it's a very broad term, but we're talking about hand washing with soap and water and making sure you can do that everywhere you need to, as well as uh, menstrual hygiene uh, management, because girls and women uh, very fundamentally need to ensure that they have the information, the resources, the facilities, the products that they need to manage their, their menstruation. Um, and if we don't have that, then we, we don't have adequate hygiene, particularly for girls and women. Great. Thank you. So can we talk a little bit about where you are working? So you've hit on these wash areas, safe and available drinking water, sanitation, hand washing, um, menstrual sanitation. Where are you focused on those different topics? And um, can you describe a few of the challenges that uh, you are particularly focused on addressing? Sure. Um, so I'm currently working in Zimbabwe, which is a country in Southern Africa, about, about 15 million people, give or take. It's been a while since we had a census. There was just one. So we're waiting for those results. Zimbabwe is one of the most climate vulnerable countries in the world. Uh, some people may have heard in 2019, there was Cyclone Dai, which was very destructive, particularly in Mozambique, but, but also very much in Zimbabwe um, and a few other surrounding countries. So there's an increasing uh, intensity and frequency of cyclones, which is sort of what they call a hurricane in the Southern Hemisphere, but a lot more storms and ferocious storms and heavy rains, as well as not, not just the cyclone and, and those, those heavy rains. Uh, you know, break through rivers, wash communities out, wash water systems out, um, schools, healthcare facilities, uh, and very, very destroyed roads, bridges. Um, and so there's always an effort to make sure that we are not only able to respond when those things happen, but also try to 
to, to be more aware of those risks when we're building things in the first place and we're putting in place um, what needs to be managed and how we need to have warnings and things like that so that we're really doing all we can before as well as immediately afterwards to, to ensure people are safe and they have what they need, particularly drinking water and, and sanitation are the utmost first needs that, that, um, that are needed once, once an emergency hits. But Zimbabwe is very interesting because part of the country is very vulnerable to heavy rains, storms, and cyclones, and the other part of the country is in drought. Uh, and so probably, a bit, you know, similar to kind of challenges you have in, in, the, in, the, in Colorado and in the Western U.S., we go long periods with not enough water. And in a place where we rely on groundwater, the water that's, that's under the ground as opposed to surface water and, and rainfall, um, the, the rainfall recharges the underground water. And if there's not that rainfall, then that water is not getting recharged. And then when we go to pump it out, it's either not there or it's deeper and deeper and deeper, which is more and more and more expensive. And particularly in Zimbabwe, in contrast to, to the Western US, is that the population is quite sparse. And so you have small communities dotting the landscape as opposed to huge populations where you can justify a much larger investment. And so it's very difficult to, to build a huge water system for a couple hundred people, but there's those couple hundred people all over the place really add up. And so if, you know, if we can make sure that people do have the water they need for all their household needs, but also their community gardens, or if they have livestock, making sure their livestock can have enough water to drink, um, then you can really start talking about change and you can, people can have uh, economic opportunities instead of spending five hours a day walking to get water because there's one borehole really far away. So it's really quite life-changing and we're always trying to do the best we can to, to say what is the level that people need to thrive, not just survive. Uh, maybe we could take a step back and let's talk a little bit about, and I'll use a water analogy, what are the buckets of your work? I don't want to characterize it wrong. So maybe you could give us like, what are the major categories of the work that you're doing? Sure. And I think that very much the way we look at it is, is um, what we call an enabling environment or strengthening the systems. So we need to have policies. Again, in this country, we have, you know, the National Water Act, so you have federal and state uh, policies, strategies, you, you, you need to know what you're going to do and what's going to guide your investment. What, what, you know, what do you need to do? Who needs to do what? What capacities do you need? So we work on, on that side. We need monitoring because it's, it's about the most boring thing you could talk about is monitoring. <laughs> um, but if you don't know who has water and who doesn't, how are you targeting your resources? Right. Very important um, part so of decision making. Mm -hmm. Very yeah. important part of decision making. Um, and so sort of having that data and making sure you're translating that data into, into information and knowledge. So within the enabling environment, we have the policy side, we have the monitoring side, and then um, uh, we need budgeting, right? So, you know, government budgeting is a long, complex process. And what we're really, you know, we as UNICEF, we do a lot of implementation. We do build things. There's a lot of partners around the world that do things, NGOs and, and nonprofits, all sorts of different organizations. But the main funder of, of water sanitation hygiene is the government, whether it's local governments or national governments. And so we, and, that, and that's the only truly sustainable uh, way to do that because nonprofits and external funding come and go, but the government needs to be the one to stay. And obviously the government doesn't always have the resources and we all need to support that. But for UNICEF, our goal is to support the government to do its job. And in this country and in Zimbabwe and any country, it is the government's responsibility to provide um, drinking water, sanitation, and hygiene. There's, there's not too many that would disagree with that, uh, but it's not easy. And so for UNICEF, we really focus on the enabling environment and aiming to work ourselves out of the job of the more nuts and bolts. 
and the other pieces of it, so the enabling environment, but also supply. And so that's where we put in infrastructure. And also, and again, whether that means we're building a water system or putting in a borehole, and whether we work with a, a local partner, an NGO, or we look with the local government, because maybe they do have the capacity, they just don't have the money. But also when we talk about toilets, it isn't about someone else building them. No one, no one walks into your house and builds your toilet when you've built your house. And so it's about saying, look, do you have the products you need to build a toilet? Or do you need to go six hours to the main town? Um, that you're probably not going to build a toilet if you don't have a lot of money and you certainly can't, you can barely afford a bag of cement. You certainly can't afford the six hour trip and the transport costs. So trying to make sure that people have what they need to do, what, it, what is the household responsibility, uh, but also that they all have the knowledge and they demand to have a toilet. They demand to have water supply. Um, so yeah, so we work on the environment supply and demand. Um, and that's kind of the three buckets we put it into. And again, when we're in an emergency situation, because UNICEF works in, um, we have huge programs in Afghanistan and Yemen, and South Sudan, um, and in Ukraine right now. So, so there's there's places where there's conflict, uh, but there's also places where there's huge natural disasters. So whether it's in Zimbabwe after Cyclone Idai, where we, again, we don't on a regular basis try to kind of just provide the service. Uh, we try to work with the government to provide the service or other partners. Uh, but when when there's a massive cyclone, then then it, it isn't the needs are just so great and, and the systems break down. And again, I mean, we, again, we saw this in, in um, the hurricane in New Orleans. You know, there, there are just times where it's just too much pressure for the ongoing system and you have to bring in outsiders. So, Cindy, can you tell us a little bit more about UNICEF and how the wash work that you're doing fits within the organization's broader mission? Sure. So UNICEF is the United Nations Children's Fund. Uh, we are a part of the United Nations, which is sort of the body of, of, of the countries in the world and, and uh, member states, as it were, and the governments. Um, but we have that very specific mandate of children um, and, and their families, uh, making sure that children's needs are met. And so we work in various sectors, I would say, uh, but basically making sure that children have what they need to survive and thrive. Um, so we work on education systems, we work on health systems, and again, there's we've all heard of WHO now with COVID, um, and the World Health Organization is a really important, but UNICEF really work is to ensure the health system for children. Uh, nutrition, again, child nutrition, uh, there's a huge, there's, you know, we, we all, we've, we've seen photos of, of starving children and uh, very, very thin, and that's severe acute malnutrition. That's not that, that is a, a very much a fundamental problem, especially where you have conflict and people are moving and they just don't have their coping mechanisms and their food. But we also have stunting, which is basically that children are not getting a, a nutritious diet. So um, so we're working on, on stunting and, and making sure that children are uh, both mentally and physically developing as, as, uh, as healthy children. Um, and we work on water sanitation hygiene, which kind of underpins all of that in terms of, you know, you, you can't have good health if you're if you have diarrhea all the time from drinking contaminated water. You can't have good nutrition if you're if you always have diarrhea and you're not absorbing the nutrition. And you can't you know going to school without a toilet um, or or simply being drinking contaminated water, not being able to go to school is a problem. But also when you go to school, making sure that there's drinking water, there's toilets, there's hand washing facilities, but also making sure that that when we talk about you know, what are good hygiene practices and good sanitation, we need to be working in schools because that's the time to teach mm-hmm. people when, when they're young. So a lot of what you're describing as it relates to WASH is really that that water and sanitation piece really is an underpinning for so many of the other goals that UNICEF has. And I think 
uh, we tend to take for granted in the U.S. and in other more developed countries. You know, these are things we don't really think about. We don't think about where your water is coming from, whether or not you have access to sanitation. You know, the it, it allows us to um, go about our day-to-day life in a very different way than people who are really concerned about that, who are spending hours getting access to clean water, et cetera. So it, it, it does seem uh, like the international space is in some places quite different from work on water that are happening here in the States. That said, there are aspects of water and sanitation that are still real challenges across the U.S. And one of the places that the Spur Campus is focused on is kind of the arid American West. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about um, some of the places around the world that you see having similar challenges to water access and supply um, and some of the ways that UNICEF is addressing those challenges in some of those drier places. Around the world, climate change is, you know, the, the, we say, you know, climate change is sort of first felt through water. Well, drinking water is the most basic need there is, and, and it is absolutely being felt there. And so, so yeah, so, so you know, in, in, the, in the, the American West, you have water restrictions, right? And, and, you know, you don't lose water, though. You can still turn on your tap and, you, you know, you're just asked not to water your lawn or run your washing machine certain hours and things like that. But, you know, if you're in the in arid Zimbabwe and you have a borehole and the water table is no longer, you know, where it used to be. Right. So, you know, you, you put a borehole in uh, underground and there's a, a water table sort of, you know, it, you know, it may be 30, 30 yards down. And if it rains less and less and less, that water table keeps going down and down and down. And then suddenly your borehole just doesn't reach the water. You got to drill a new one. You didn't have money for that. Um, and, and with climate change, we just need to keep, you know, drilling deeper and deeper. And is that sustainable or are we over uh, exploiting the aquifers and the, and the groundwater? This is very much an issue that you have in the West. How much water do you have? And when it changes, all the things that you built around um, that presumption start to change. They either become, you know, in the U.S., that tends to be they become more expensive. And then, you, you know, you, you maybe don't have the same industries in the same place because it's no longer economically viable to have those industries. Or you keep spending more and more money to bring water further, further away. You know, there's a lot of effort to manage the demand um, and to bring in more water-saving technologies. There's a lot of innovation that comes from these kind of changes. And that's what we see here in the U.S. And when we talk about, you know, the arid parts of Zimbabwe, we're talking about things a lot more basic, a lot more simple the the use of the water is just not as complex there there's there's not enough water to have built industry in the first place and again we can there are dams and there is surface water in other parts of the country we can put in bigger pipelines and and bring it but again it's expensive and so at the end of the day climate change is really exacerbating the economic challenges of uh, moving water treating water finding finding water in the first place Thank you. You've you've hit on so many different complexities within the wash environment, particularly um, in the work that you do. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what it means to have your particular position. What is a day in the life for the chief of climate resilient wash at UNICEF? I mean, I do a lot of different things in a day. And fundamentally, I'm a manager. Um, and I'd like to, I hope I'm a, a leader as well of my team and in my role of, of, that I play. But I, sorry, fundamentally, I manage resources. I manage people. I manage money and I try to make the, lead the strategy of how we use those, those resources. Fundamentally, I'm, I'm a manager and, and a leader in the space that I'm working. So I manage resources. I have um, partners in my way. I have a team of about 13 people. 
um, making sure that each of them has a clear role and responsibility. Um, that they each have accountability for the work that they do. They know what they need to do. Um, they have clear expectations. I, you know, we have common clear expectations so that they're able to, to do their job and I'm able to support them in the way that they need to, um, but that they can work independently and, and achieve their work um, and, and that they can call on me for, for what they need, be it technical guidance or, to, you know, we, I do work in a bureaucracy and so sometimes you have to kind of use a bit of hierarchy to get through, get business made, get papers signed. And so that, so my job to navigate all that to enable them to do their jobs, fundraising, and making sure that we both have money to spend as well as to, to spend it. Um, and with that comes um, relations with the, the people who fund us, um, as well as the partners that we work with. And uh, I am a huge, huge believer. For, for me, this is really core to my work, which is the whole has to be greater than the sum of all parts. And I don't think that UNICEF has all the answers. I don't think any one organization has all the answers, all the capacities, all the expertise, all the credibility um, to affect the change that's needed. It's a complex space. And so for me, it's about building partnerships with those that, um, that complement us um, and say, okay, this is what we do. For, for me as a, as a person, as a supervisor, as a, a manager, as a leader, it's you know, recognizing what you do well and what you, or your strengths are. Um, and what others do well and how you bring that together. So whether I, I bring that into my daily work, um, but I also try to bring that to my sort of how I lead the team. I do a lot of working at, with the government, particularly at more senior levels, and making sure that, again, that my team is able to influence the policies and the budgeting. I work closely with my health colleagues because, again, if we could and you know, diarrheal disease, or at least the WASH-related diarrheal disease, our health colleagues would have a whole lot less work to do um, and in treating people and curing diseases, um, similarly with nutrition. So it's really about partnerships within UNICEF and other expertise with the government and working very closely with them and supporting them to, to achieve their agenda, um, working with our other partners, but really managing the resources, managing the partnerships, developing all that and providing strategy. Yeah. So you've hit on some buckets of work that you do. And those are buckets that I think are maybe common across folks who are in a, a level of position that is similar to yours. Um, policy work, advocacy work, partnerships, fundraising, management of your team. And I guess I would be curious to hear a little bit. Let's transition a little to sort of what's your journey to this point in time, right? Because you're now in a management role within this wash space. You have not always been in that role. Can you tell us briefly kind of what's the, what was the journey that got you, I don't know, you know, when you were a kid, was this something you were dreaming of? I, yeah. I want to work internationally. No, like what is, was the... This is very far away where I was yeah. as a kid. <laughs> right. So, um, and that's really common, right? We don't, most of us have uh, yeah. unexpected journeys. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about your unexpected yeah. journey. Sure. And, I, you know, I mean, I work with a lot of people whose, whose parents worked in this industry, as it were. And so they were exposed to international development and they were exposed to working and moving around. And um, I was not at all. I grew up in the suburbs of Boston. But I just, you know, I, I always loved traveling. And I really wanted to be a teacher all growing up. Nothing else. Just I, had, I was laser focused on being a teacher. And I, when I applied to, to university, I even applied to education schools. I think, you know, it would talk about a pivotal moment because I, I applied to the University of Michigan School of Education and I received back a letter that said, well, you have to, you come into the School of Education, you're a junior, um, but we'll let you into the, the Lawrence College. I just thought, 
Oh, they let me in, but I couldn't even figure out the application process. <laughs> they let me in. So when I went to the University of Michigan, and I pretty quickly realized, like, I don't want to be a teacher. I feel like, you know, what I understood teaching to be was like sitting in school and, you know, getting your tenure and, and being in one place. And I thought, well, that, you know, I love to travel and I love to meet new people. And um, I'm not sure that is what I want to do. And so pretty quickly, I'm quite glad that I didn't go into an education school there. School because I, I ended up majoring in political science, which was um, just kind of interesting to me of kind of how, things, how decisions get made and, and what the implications are and critical thinking. I just found my way to DC because it seemed like the place to go, but with a great deal of clarity. But again, still with this idea of traveling. And so I ended up working for a, a consulting company who, who implements international development programs at the admin level, but it got me in to see what what it was all about and I found my way overseas and um, I found my way into emergency work um, first which has a huge gratification it's like people need water here's your water <laughs> um, what I came to see pretty quickly is that there's a lot of constraints that are beyond the community level um, and and so after years of really working at that community level, I kind of started to want to reach and influence at a higher level of, of saying, okay, well, these communities are all constrained by the fact that the government's not investing or that there's no information at the government level to make a decision about what to invest in. And so I just, over my career, I, I just started to kind of reach into the more fundamental challenges and having that with that moving, say, up just in terms of the governance level structures, you, have, you know, the national government, the local government down to the community. Um, and so I worked my way from the bottom up and kind of walked and said, okay, well, here at the district level, you know, it's not just the community, the community needs to be supported by the local authorities. Okay, let's work with the local authorities. And how do they do that? And it's like, well, they're not resourced adequately and they don't have the policies to guide them, or they don't have the capacities so to keep going up. And, um, and I actually went, my, my previous, one of my previous roles was actually working at USF headquarters and, and uh, leading a global partnership of of countries, of NGOs, and, and really coordinating a conversation and a dialogue around uh, how do we fundamentally, uh, what, what is common across countries and what are the common uh, ways to move forward? And you know, governments need to be in the lead. There needs to be one clear agenda um, rather than everybody working on their own in silos. Um, and so I kind of reached this, you know, pinnacle of hierarchy of the global policy dialogue and um, learned a great deal and it was fascinating. But at the same time, always kind of yearning to come back down to it. But for me, what motivates me is that scale of getting the government to make a decision and it cascaded to everybody. But I think as international organizations, uh, we can contribute, but we don't solve problems. Um, you know, if we can solve a problem today, you know, you know, if we didn't, you know, if the fundamental issues are not addressed, the problem just comes back. Um, and so I'm much more interested in taking time. One of the things I'm hearing you say that I think is really interesting is, and I think might be particularly interesting if for a young person who's sort of thinking about a career path, um, that you started at a, a grassroots level, right, at a community level, and then worked at a variety of different scales and on a ver kind of coming at the same problem from a variety of different perspectives or lenses, right? There's one, the immediate gratification you're talking about. You need water. I'm handing you water. Um, two, there's a systemic or foundational problem that we're seeking to change at a different scale. So I think it's really, um, I wonder if you could could talk a little bit about, you know, the 
the, this is true across a lot of different career paths too, right? The scale at which sure. and the which are you are you focused on the complex systemic problem or are you focused on the more immediate problem? And I think um, throughout the course of mm-hmm. one's career, one might pick and choose once you've been exposed to all of those different scales and approaches. You might find one that feels like the right fit and try to settle yourself mm-hmm. in that space. Yeah, exactly. And and again, it was you know I, my. My approach to my career early on was always, you know, do what you enjoy. And then when it's no longer challenging, find something mm-hmm. more. And that worked for a really long time for me. At a certain point, though, I hit a, a level of seniority where you, you, you need to be a bit more deliberate in defining what you want to do next and be building those skills before you get there. Um, and so that was a bit of a wake up call for me that, you know, sort of like, I, you know, I'm just going to be driven by my, not, not so curiosity so, and your interest and, and yeah. my passion, my satisfaction. And I just, you know, and I always found opportunity through hard work and delivering and, and you know, having a reputation for myself and, and being able to, to advance. But, but that, that wasn't enough to keep advancing because I wasn't necessarily recognizing what the next role needed. So I think there's sort of two things here. One is, is what is my personal pathway and how do you move through um, not just a hierarchy by any means, but you know, again, I, 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 it's, you know, but for me, the sort of governance stuff is kind of stacked hierarchically in the government system. So, you know, where do you want to influence? Where do you feel energized? And I, you know, I feel energized from, you know, a great meeting with a key decision maker as much as I do from a community getting water because that community, those 200 people in that community got water and that's amazing. But when that decision maker makes a decision to put in a budget of $20 million, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but that's not, that, that is the thing that will make a difference to thousands and thousands of people. And so that takes time, that takes a different skill set, but that's exciting for me. You've been working over the course of your career in a variety of different places. How many different countries? Um, Long term, sort of more than a year. I've been in, I was in Timor-Leste for a total of five years. I was in Rwanda for three and a half years. I, I feel like I'm skipping something. <laughs> I was in Albania uh, in 2000, but that was less than a year, just because our funding ran out, so I had to leave. Um, I've been in Zimbabwe for a year and a half. Um, I was I was in UNICEF headquarters for around 10 years. Um, so there was a point where... Um, you also have to find balance in your life. And uh, my parents were, were aging. And, um, and so I decided I needed to come back to the U.S. and from the East Coast. And, um, and so I, you know, I was able to still do the work and, and, and advance my career um, and, and, and you know, work in WASH, which is my passion, but, but also be there for my family. And so Skype and Zoom and, and all these things definitely have helped a lot more than when early in my career when I was in Albania. Um, you know, I got 10 minutes a call for 10 minutes a month to call somebody at home or we're in, in Timor, let's say it's, it's an island country. And uh, I was in a town that didn't have an early network, um, but it was about 45 minutes away from the city. And so if I drove 20 minutes and I walked out onto this one spot on the beach that would get the signal from the city, I could call the U.S. and I could talk to my mom. <laughs> so... You've mentioned some of the challenges of working and living internationally. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you love about it. Sure. I mean, there is so much. And, and again, I think that's, you know, that's the choice that me and my husband and my family make to, to keep doing this work. Um, is it, you know, the traveling is amazing. We're, you know, we live in Africa. And so when we go 
away for a few days or a week, you know, where you go down to Florida from the East Coast or go to California. We, you know, we head to South Africa or Kenya um, and go to amazing beaches and see all sorts of new things and animals. Um, that's a huge part of it, but also just being able to get to know people of an entirely different experience. And, um, you know, the people that I work with are just uh, tremendous and, and working with people in different cultures, different settings, the, their experiences growing up um, and how they got to where they are uh, is just a, a constant learning opportunity and, and an opportunity for reflection on yourself and your place in the world. And, uh, that is just something that really, really keeps me going. So, Cindy, can you tell us where people can find more information about uh, UNICEF and particularly the WASH work that you're doing, social media, websites, et cetera? Sure. Um, so UNICEF is a, a, a large global international uh, organization, unicef.org, U-N-I-C-E-F.org. Um, there's plenty of information there about WASH um, as well and then sort of areas we work in. There's also, uh, for the U.S. particularly, um, while we are part of the U.N., UNICEF is also affiliated with um, and sort of has a, a part of its structure is that we have national committees um, in many countries. And so uh, while the U.N. doesn't sort of work here as the U.N., we do have our sister agency, UNICEF USA, uh, which does a lot of advocacy work for children here in the U.S., um, as well as, as fundraising with the public. You can also go to unicefusa.org, which is part of our UNICEF structure where we have a, a nonprofit um, organization here in the U.S., which, which also advocates for children here in the U.S., uh, as well as, as fundraisers for UNICEF. Great. Um, but then there is a wide, wide social media presence uh, for both UNICEF and UNICEF USA. Great. Thank you. So we'll also link to those resources in the show notes if anyone wants more information about uh, UNICEF and the WASH work in particular. Um, so now we have come to the very final question I have for you, which is our spur of the moment question. So um, you have traveled quite a bit, but I'm curious if there is a place that you have always wanted to travel that you have not yet been. That is an interesting one. Um, there are a couple. There's actually three, I think. Um, and interestingly, I, I spent a lot of time in Asia and a lot of time in Africa. I um, would love to see the Aurora Borealis, the Northern Lights. Um, and so that is on my bucket list. Mine too. I have never been to Scotland and hiked the Highlands. That is on my bucket list. And there's a pilgrimage that goes through Spain and Portugal, and I always get the name wrong, so I won't try to say it correctly. But, um, but I, my, it is my goal one day to probably not do the whole thing, but to do... Um, the, uh, to do to do at least a part of that walk. Those are my three bucket lists. That's the Camino de Santiago. Is that the one? You exactly. Yes. Thank you. Yes. It's on my one. list as well. That um, the idea of uh, a walking vacation sounds um, like the right speed, but also includes a different <laughs> way of seeing all of those places. Right. Um, so I really I exactly. love that idea too. Cindy, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate you being a guest on CSU Spur of the Moment and uh, hope that our paths uh, cross again soon. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much. The CSU Spur of the Moment podcast is produced by Kevin Samuelson and our theme music is by Ketza. Please visit the show notes for links mentioned in this episode. We hope you'll join us in two weeks for the next episode. Until then, be well. Be well.